Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history program that you take once every three weeks, with meals or as needed. Because today, we're talking about prescription medicine. Uh, what is it? And why is it even a thing? And why is it complicated legally? All of these things we will answer in today's episode. Uh, but today's episode is a little bit special because we have a guest on the podcast today, something we've never done before, and it's going to go great. First of all, I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. Uh, and who is who are you and what are you doing in our house? <laughs> <laughs> My name is Patrick Kelly. Uh, I'm your special guest today. Uh, I'm a science communicator and high school teacher from the San Francisco Bay Area. And you have uh, you have a YouTube channel as well, right? Oh yeah, I should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so on YouTube, I have two channels. One, I teach anatomy and physiology. And then on the other, I tell stories from the history of medicine. I talk about everything from like patent drugs and how we came up with uh, different like poisons turned like turned medicines. And in general, it's a way of exploring the world of health through history. It's yeah. a lot of fun, but also can get really sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, every episode we record of this podcast, we end up talking about Nazis. Mm -hmm. No matter... I've noticed that. <laughs> no matter what the medical history topic, whenever it involves the 1930s, in any way there are Nazis. There are Nazis in today's episode. Yeah, I was, I I was saw saying, that, yeah. I was saying that a while back. That that's why I always like doing medieval episodes, because there's no Nazis. Um, it's a little bit harder to like draw connections between medieval people and you know modern subjects so i think yeah. we we try to make them a bit more modern but i just fucking hate talking about nazis <laughs> <laughs> there are no nazis involved in the dancing play for example <laughs> but before we prescribe today's dose of content uh, we also of course want to thank our patrons for supporting this podcast we don't have sponsors for this podcast yet so you are right now the sole supporting force behind this patrons get access to early episodes including a video version that contains extra fun bits and jokes uh, and of course, our own lovely faces, which today includes Patrick's face. <laughs> As a patron, you also have a chance for an in-episode shout-out. Uh, and speaking of which, today we want to thank Diana Rivero. Thank you so much, Diana, for your contribution, uh, for supporting the, the podcast, and specifically this episode. We hope you um, are a fan of pharmaceuticals, because <laughs> mm -hmm. that's what we're going to talk about today. Thank you again, Diana. Thank you. For your contribution, I am going to buy a small pack of crisps. But before we dig into today's prescription, I'm going to do these jokes the entire episode. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, used to it. What have uh, both of you, the two of you, been up to? Well, as always, I am doing my course and it's once again kicking my ass. Um, but the good news is that it's getting warmer outside and... I've been really getting into the idea of getting back into skating, uh, roller skating. Yes. I did this last year. You broke your arm last year doing this. <laughs> um, so maybe I should take that as like a as a warning to like not do it anymore. But it's really fun, so I want to do it. And I think this year I'm going to get better skates. They're going to be faster. <laughs> yeah, because that's what you want in skating. You want to go as fast as humanly possible. But you do need to go fast to be able to do the cool shit. So I think I, I need to go all in. But that's that's been me. Um, how have you been, Patrick? How, oh, how was your day? You said it was 8 a.m. where you are right it now? It is just starting, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, so I got my favorite uh, over-the-counter pharmaceutical caffeine. <laughs> no, lately it's been good. It's also been getting warmer. And it's funny you mentioned skating because I didn't tell you all this when we first started chatting. I, I ride BMX, so I, like, I am very familiar with the skate parks and mm -hmm. like 
please continue skating and then you can come to California and I'll show you all the skate parks. But no, otherwise, like this, this project has been so much fun. Like this is such a big topic as the audience is going to hear on the uh, episode today. But I feel like only in the last week has the narrative really clicked for me. Like I've had this enormous Google Doc of research this entire time. And now it's finally starting to make sense. Like, all right, this is how we're going to tell the story. This is how it's actually going to, how we're going to turn like thousands of years of history into something that makes sense. So I'm like excited that we're actually recording today. Yeah. It's coming at a good time. It's, it's, it's really fun because it reminds me of making scripts for videos as well, where for until the day of actual recording, it's complete nonsense. It does not make any sense. Like it, there's a vision somewhere, but it's not, it's not done yet. And then when you like hit record, everything just like everything falls into place. Good. Well, Mia, how are you? Thank you. Um, I was I was looking at Salem to, to to throw that back. No, I've been good. I have been I've been engaging in local politics. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I've been doing. I mean, I've also been finishing video, but I say that every time, and I've been told off uh, about it. I'm not, <laughs> but because I do say it every single video. But I've been I've been engaging in local politics. Uh, I have been. What else have I been doing? That's basically it. Well, but that's a big thing. It is a big thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm going to run for a local like city council seat. Uh, that's so exciting. Sort like sort of like it's hard to like translate to like an American equivalent because like we don't have mayors or like state senate in mm-hmm. the same way. But yeah, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do something like that and. The, the way Swedish elections work right now, I probably shouldn't say this like on the podcast, like live to <laughs> the entire world, because nothing is set in stone yet. But if I manage to actually run, the, the way the, the Swedish elections work, I'm almost guaranteed to win a seat unless the party completely loses. Because we have proportional representation, right? And as long as I get chosen by the party to like be one of the representatives, as long as the party like gets a seat, I will take that seat. <laughs> The okay. seat will be yours. The seat will be mine. Unless, like, th- there are many, like, ifs and buts in, like, Swedish democracy, so no one really knows. But, like, you know, it's gonna happen. I'm going to become dictator of Sweden, <laughs> of Stockholm. <laughs> Your journey Breaking to... Breaking on the Leech Fest podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Your journey to take ultimate power. Yeah. I'm, I'm has going, begun. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to ze- seize... I'm going to seize the throne. Hmm. I like that I'm saying this here because I know that like if I actually do end up going into politics like properly, this is something that is like a local Swedish newspaper is gonna like dig up and like <laughs> use as sort of like <laughs> as like um, tarnishing material. But that's a story for a different time. Mm-hmm. That's that's way too much detail. <laughs> but I've been doing that. I've been starting my journey uh, to becoming Empress of Sweden. Alright, so let's talk about pharmaceuticals. So first of all, what does the word pharmacy mean? It is derived from a Greek word, um, as most words are. (laughs) They are either derived from Greek or Latin. Um, And it is derived from the Greek word pharmakeia, I think that's how you say it, which means use of drugs, medicines, potions, and spells. And spells. And spells. I mean, you you know how it was. Spells was spells was always a part of the deal. Just a little bit magic. Um, the use of various pharmaceuticals has been around as long as humankind itself, and it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when the science of pharmacology arose. But there is evidence that Neanderthals in what is now northern Spain used specific plants to self-medicate. Are these the same cavemen in northern in northern Spain that used magic mushrooms? 
Because there were hmm. Neanderthals in northern Spain that also used magic mushrooms to self-medicate. I don't know if they were the same ones, but I wouldn't be surprised. The Neanderthals in northern Spain have got it going on. <laughs> yeah, but there were, there were a bunch of caves where they found different medicinal plants and, and herbs and things like that. I'm hmm. going to talk about like a very specific one, but it, def it definitely was not like isolated or hmm. it, would, it, it wasn't like, a, yeah, like an isolated case. Interesting. Um, so the researchers who are responsible for these findings use morphological and molecular analysis of plant microfossils trapped in dental plaque to determine that the Neanderthals were eating bitter plants with little nutritional value. It's known that they had the bitter taste perception gene, so it's likely that the plants were selected for reasons other than taste and nutritional value. I love that they like <laughs> that. That's a, that's something that they had to specify. Like they, 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 they had to check for it. Yeah, they knew it was they bitter. Have, yeah. they knew it was gross. Did they did they know it was gross? <laughs> did the Neanderthals actually like know that it was gross? No, they had to check for it because I guess like that's something that you know could have developed over time. That's super interesting too because so many of those like plants turned like modern pharmaceuticals have that bitter taste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like quinine or quinine, however you want to pronounce it, mm -hmm. comes from the cinchona bark, which is also bitter. One of the other things that I'm going to mention in my section too, like bitter taste. And so I hear that like that was a way that they could actually tell like, oh, this might yeah. not be nutritional, but mm -hmm. it could be medicinal or yeah. whatever that meant yeah, to exactly. Neanderthals. Exactly. And the specific plants that they found were yarrow and chamomile. And chamomile, mm -hmm. as you might know, it's, it's a plant that's been used for centuries for a variety of ailments, including insomnia, ulcers, gastrointestinal disorders, and inflammation. And yarrow is another uh, widely used herb which can also relieve gastrointestinal discomfort, fever, and toothache. And Cam something yeah, chamomile definitely knocks my ass out every day, though. So I get why that's like yeah, yeah. powerful thing. Yeah, they had trouble sleeping. They needed some help. <laughs> it was a very stressful time. They needed. They the needed with all that sleepy time tea. <laughs> yeah, they did. Um, I also noticed, like reading about like ancient medicinal herbs, is that a lot of the herbs they used were aimed at gastrointestinal disorders mm -hmm. and discomfort. Because <laughs> I guess their diet was not amazing and they really needed to like relieve some of that bellyache. Fun fact, like one of the most like largest cause of death in the history of humankind has been diarrhea. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not surprised. That's not a joke. It's still one of the biggest killers yeah. today. Yeah. And like back in the day, like that's also a reason why this is a a topic for another day but like mm -hmm. that's a big reason why opium dens became so popular because they helped so much with gastrointestinal issues like people today think that like oh people like to get high and they did but it was also like opium did save a lot of lives because it prevented diarrhea mm -hmm. speaking speaking of like a reason why this is such a big thing in ancient in ancient medicine it's one of the big reasons why opium became sort of like a like a like a medicinal crop actually like why it was like cultivated there was a, like a recreational market for it but most like legislate legislative like um bodies knew that it was that it wasn't great but the medicinal values just outweighed them so much that they kind of had to be a thing and today like because we have so many med medicinal alternatives we view opium as only being recreational which is actually actually anachronistic fun fact look at you dropping the the medical knowledge <laughs> on me completely should like stole my thunder okay <laughs> sorry i guess i'll I guess i'll go on to talk about like ancient mesopotamians <laughs> i just completely obliterated my part i'm yeah. sorry <laughs> all right did you can cut this out it was just fun no time. no i it, it was good good job so ancient mesopotamians and egyptians in 1500 bc kept written records about pharmaceuticals mostly derived from plants but also with mineral or animal origins 
Many of the plants mentioned in ancient clay tablets or pap papyri had multiple uses, which is a feature of all ancient systems of medicine, since they all kind of thought that the ailments were manifestations of the state of disease. So it wasn't like they had individual illnesses. It was more like you were generally sick, and then that made you display different kinds of symptoms. Oh. Therefore, any remedy that would cure an imbalance of humors would inevitably have a broad range of applications. Of the minerals popular in ancient Mesopotamia, both salt and saltpeter were used, uh, while milk, snakeskin, and tortoise shell were some of the substances of animal origin that were preferred. Some Mesopotamian clay tablets also included formulas and instructions for physicians, which included pulverization, infusion, boiling, and filtering. In several cases, plants were treated with wine and then mixed with setter or similar oil to prepare soothing salves. People love using wine and oil yeah, as yeah, medicine. Yeah, I know. In these wine days. was wine was the main character in in those times. And but also like oil, like a lot of like just bathing in oil and milk. Mm -hmm. Just like this, this will cure. This will fix you right up. Yeah. Um, the liquid formulations were obtained by the decoction of plants in boiled water, followed by the addition of alkali, or salts, which would have enhanced the extraction process. The pulverized ingredients that had to be taken by mouth were usually taken with beer, and there was even a degree of chemical interaction, with some records suggesting the combination of alkaline substances with fat to produce soap, which would then be applied to wounds for its antibacterial and cleansing effect. This reading this, I honestly did not expect them to be so like good at it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think I think maybe <laughs> I was a little bit um, prejudiced against ancient Egyptians, but I didn't expect them to like have such I don't know advanced methods of preparing medications to like make proto soap. What like the soap? Because I mean, it wasn't just the soap. Like they, you know, they they would um, they would combine they would like extract active yeah. ingredients and like combine them with like oil or wine like depending on its face and this actually leads me to a question because you said decoction of plants mm -hmm. is that like a version because that sounds like concoction is that it sounds like a, a similar word i think sense? i think what they mean here is just by, like the extraction of active ingredients okay yeah hmm. so like uh, i guess decoction is to like take substances out of something whereas mm -hmm. concoction would i guess be like to mix, put, them mix them together that's how i interpret it yeah Sure. If you if you so, know, please let us know, dear <laughs> listener. So at this point, it looks like we have like a, a pharmacopoeia. We we're starting to get like a list of different medicines that mm -hmm. work for different things. Mm -hmm. At this point, do you know if we also have pharmacies, like dedicated places to store like all these ingredients? So I think in ancient Greece, no, in ancient Egypt, the they they had like priests who acted as. Um, you know, like physicians and also pharmacists. So I guess that like maybe in temples, that's where they, they, they kept like all their, you know, active substances, like, the, you know, their sure. herbs and their spices and everything that they would use to cure people. But I don't think they had so like... it was a pantry. <laughs> it was a pantry. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it was, it was still like somewhat like informal at this point. But I, I do remember them talking about priests having like this, uh, this role. This reminds me of when we talked about like pre-Christian medicine in Europe, mm -hmm. where a lot of medicine would be done by women as part of like like kitchen like mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. That sort of like that that food objects and like food preparation had a very similar sort of like skill overlap with mm -hmm. medis medical mm -hmm. like preparation. Mm -hmm. So that 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 tracks. I feel like I like the I feel like multiple cultures probably like had similar sort of like paths. 
Mm-hmm. Into that. Makes sense. I think especially I'm going to talk about um, ancient Greece now, <laughs> and I think it was no in both ancient Greece and ancient Egypt they had a lot of foodstuffs that they like included in their meals because of their medicinal properties. Oh. Um, I know they 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 liked to use um, yeah just a lot of like spices that we would use these days. They would you know add if, like somebody needed a little help with their. Like if their belly hurt or they have headaches or, you know, they were impotent, like <laughs> they would add all of these like specific ingredients. So I think there is definitely a connection between like cookery and medicine. Yeah. Cool. Now let's talk a bit about ancient Greece. We, you know, we have to mention ancient Greece whenever we talk about medicine. Um, so in ancient Greece, what's interesting is that there was an important distinction between the physician and the pharmacist. So, and this is, it's quite interesting because it's, it's really quite early that they, that they have this distinction. So the pharmacist provided the physician with the raw materials and the instructions on how to make medicines, or they made them themselves. But the pharmacist did not typically tend to the sick themselves. They did not have patients. But it's an important thing to note here that many physicians at the time were also pharmacists. So, you know, like we've mentioned in previous episodes, um, if you read like an ancient physician's biography, you're going to notice that they have like nine different titles. Like yeah. they're going to be a physician, they're going to be like a physicist, a chemist, uh, astrologer, mm-hmm. astronomer, local politician, uh, local politician, broth- brothel owner, <laughs> yeah, business owner, merchant. Like it's this, gonna, this isn't even like a, it's even not a just, slight exaggeration. You know, they do they do that. So like while in theory those two roles were separated, in practice it's kind of likely that your physician was also your pharmacist. I'm a little worried if the if the pharmacist does not treat patients themselves because in the logic of like ancient Greek philosophy, they never test anything. They just like have a theory and like go for it. Like they thought that women had fewer teeth than, <laughs> than men, which you can check. <laughs> just open your mouth. And they never did. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I never said they were good. <laughs> <laughs> good point. All right. So Pedanius Dioscorides. Pedanius Dioscorides. Pedanius Dioscorides. Pedanius Dioscorides. Um, one of those will be good. <laughs> I'll take one of those four. Pedantic um, discourse. <laughs> Pedantic discourse. <laughs> Pedantic discourse was a well-known Greek physician, pharmacologist, and botanist, and he wrote the Materia Medica, which was a five-volume encyclopedia on herbal medicine and medic and medicinal substances, which circulated for centuries after and formed the core of European pharmacopoeia through the 19th century, despite changes in medical theory. By the way, this is not like super related, uh, it's kind of related. Some copies of this book survive, and one of them dates back to the 5th century, and they keep it in the Austrian National Library. Hmm. Can you imagine a book from the 5th cool. century just being around? Like, oh, I read yeah. that, I lost my mind. A historical period of extraordinary scientific and specifically medical and pharmaceutical significance is the Islamic Golden Age, between the 7th and the 14th century. In addition to their significant contributions to the field of surgery and medical ethics, Persian scientists also described a variety of new pharmaceuticals as well as the methods for their preparation, their mode of action, and their counterindications. The first pharmacies or drug stores were established in Baghdad in 754. And it's really weird to say that. <laughs> year 754. Um, the year two. <laughs> the year two before. <laughs> the year negative five. Yeah. The pharmacists who managed them were skilled in the art of the apothecary and had to know how to prepare, store, and preserve drugs. Public hospitals had their own dispensaries where syrups, ointments, and electuaries 
were prepared on a large scale. And I did not know what electuary means, but apparently mm -hmm. it's like active ingredients mixed with honey. So I guess they they did it so often that they needed to have like a special wait. name for something that was mixed huh. with honey. Wait, wait, because you also said syrups. Yeah. And if, if electuary is mixed with honey, what the hell is syrups? Oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because like that home more like that... That poses think, more okay. questions than that. But I think the electuary is meant to be like smeared. The oh. syrup is supposed to be taken orally. That makes sense. Maybe that's the Maybe that. Yeah, that makes sense. So pharmacies at this time were also regularly inspected by government elected officials called al-muhtasib, who would check the weights and scales for accuracy as well as measure the purity of the drugs sold. By the way, I just want to make this point that the rise and development of early pharmacy in Islam happened over four centuries before Europe. <laughs> Yep. If it's like 50 years difference, like, you know, whatever, like you can, you can pass it off. But it was four centuries. Like, yeah. that's insane. The Islamic golden age, the Islamic world was like living in luxury while yeah. us filthy Europeans mm -hmm. were like still dragging our feet in the muck. <laughs> like, I'm like, people talk about like, oh, time travel back to the Middle Ages. No, you, you would not want that. The first thing. Go to thing, Baghdad. The first like, thing that's you, where it's yeah, at. Go to Baghdad. <laughs> that place is lit. Medical science in Europe stagnated following the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the loss of Greek medicinal texts. Some parts of southern Italy remained under Byzantine control, though, and scholars in the area translated Arabic medical books into Latin, which helped shift medicine and medical science from the traditional Hippocratic toward a more pharmaceutical approach. In the 12th century, pharmacy-like shops called apothecaries in Europe started popping up. This reflected a trend of pharmacy specialization that was slowly starting to take effect throughout Europe. In 1240, Emperor Frederick II issued a variety of decrees concerning the pharmacy profession, the first of which being that the role of the physician and the apothecary would be separated. Physicians were not allowed to enter business relationships with pharmacists. <laughs> Sorry, that's really, that's really funny to Personal me. Personal relationships allowed. Gain is allowed. No business per relationships. Relation <laughs> business relationships, no. But what you Wait, do in your personal time is fine. But how does that work? W wouldn't like how how do you buy the medicine? Um, no, I think what they mean is like they weren't allowed to like like run a business together. Run a business together. I think the physicians were just because the physicians were were the ones prescribing medication. They couldn't like have any like financial interest in prescribing more medication and like getting paid for it. Um, so they weren't allowed to like run an apothecary and then like prescribe more medication than needed just to sell more drugs. <laughs> oh, so it's more regulated than today's uh, yeah. <laughs> like basically healthcare. So they were not allowed to enter business relationships with pharmacists or keep apothecary shops themselves. In order to run their business, apothecaries had to obtain a certificate from a physician and take an oath that all their drugs have been prepared in their prescribed form without any fraud. The pharmaceuticals had to be produced in specific communities in the kingdom. So you had to go to like specific places, specific zones, um, and they had to be produced in the presence of inspectors. Um, and the decree mentions as far as humanly possible. I don't know what that means, but I think they just tried to do their best <laughs> to to produce them like in the presence of inspectors. That's wild because like what that was the 13th century and it stayed pretty much the same until like the early 1900s. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, that's bananas. Oh my god! Just like do your best. We'll see. We'll see if anything. Yeah, bad yeah. Happens. Figure it out. But the funny part here is that if the pharmacist or the apothecary was caught, like, doing fraud, they would get fined. 
but um, any inspector who allowed any fraud in the production, storing, or selling process would be punished by death. <laughs> um, so I don't know. If it was me, I would think I would become an apothecary. I wouldn't want to be an inspector. But that that's mm-hmm. a good that's a good way though. Like it's a bad deal. But that's a good way because like you do want because like the the point of failure is the inspector. So you want them to like be on their best behavior. Well, you want everyone to be on their best behavior. Yeah, but like you can't kill everyone who like makes a mistake or like does a little crime maybe but you can kill the people inspect who maybe the inspectors were more replaceable like it was harder less to skillful be too yeah. an apothecary so they were like okay we'll we'll get rid of the yeah. the easy ones first this is a, a also this is also unrelated completely but the chinese empire also like kept track of their own bureaucrats by doing this but like if they did even the slightest mistake they would just be executed mm-hmm. which works great for discipline when things work but but also like if someone knows that they're going to make a mistake then they're just never going to be loyal because yeah. they're just gonna like defect yeah. speaking of unrelated things because i've got plenty you mentioned salem you mentioned uh frederick the mm-hmm. second and it took me a second to remember like where have i heard of this guy before so are you familiar with what was happening in Europe with dissection from the time of Galen onward. No, but what he, okay. was he one of the ones who were, who like allowed dissection to actually like happen again? Slam dunk. Yeah, you got it. So Europe goes through this like many centuries long drought of dissection. So Galen is this like popular uh, Roman physician, surgeon, and does a ton of work to update our, our body of knowledge about dissection and human anatomy. Body you got of a knowledge. bunch of stuff wrong. hey yes. <laughs> Like, Mia, you mentioned the, the women have fewer teeth thing. That was a, that was a thing that, like, Galen repeated, um, in addition to a bunch of other stuff, right? And so, for a long time, it was just like, well, Galen got everything right. There's nothing, like, more to learn about anatomy. Plus, we're pretty grossed out by the idea <laughs> of, like, dissecting corpses. Um, and so that lasted for a long, long time. And so then finally, in like the 13th-ish century, there were some exceptions for like public human dissection. So usually if it was like a poor person or a criminal, you could go and just like make a make a day of it. You would have some surgeons like take this corpse, dissect it. Maybe they'd find some new things. Uh, but that was, but it was Frederick II that really dug that back out of uh, of the tomb, I guess you could say. I'm trying to come up with like that uh, that analogy. But that's where I'd heard of him before. I didn't know he was also had a thing to update the pharmacy profession. How cool. Yeah. yeah. I think he also was very committed to making the physician profession like more respectable, like more standardized. Mm. But he, he implemented a lot of like standards for, for physicians, like how many years they needed to study, what specifically they needed to study, how often they needed to see their patients. Like, you know, they're very much like, um, like standardized the, the profession. Uh, which is cool. He was very interested in like making yeah like medicine better. If I remember correctly, he was one of the few few emperors who is like remembered fondly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's good. Having mm-hmm. having an interest in science and less partying. Although he probably mm-hmm. parted too. I don't know. I know. I don't know enough about Frederick II. Sorry. Um, all right, but let's talk about these apothecaries that I mentioned earlier. So, like I said earlier, at the beginning when they started popping up in like the 12th century, they were like pharmacy-like. They weren't really fully pharmacies yet. Initially, they were, in fact, almost like grocery shops. 
The word apothecary is actually derived from the Latin word apotheca, meaning warehouse. So these places tended to store and sell commodities like wine, spices, herbs, perfume, confectionery. They were really like grocery stores. While initially operating together with tradesmen such as the grocers, the spicers, and the pepperers, over time, the apothecaries started specializing. <laughs> what you like to the, the pepperers. pepperers is very funny. There was a full like, like business, like you could just be a pepperer. You just sold pepper. Yeah. That was like your whole gig. Um, so they operated with uh, grocers, spicers, and pepperers. But over time, apothecaries started specializing in, in medicinal substances. And eventually, they decided to secede from the grocer's company in 1617. They seceded yeah. from the grocer's company. And they were not happy about it. Like, the grocers were not happy about oh it. Oh, my God. King James I, who approved the secession, justified his decision to the House of Commons by saying that the grocers are butt merchants, whereas the apothecaries are skillful and should have their own corporation, which they did. <laughs> And they named it the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries. Of course. <laughs> I like that the grocers are like angry about it. They were angry about it. They did not want to let them go. <laughs> However, the you know the story does not end here. There were ongoing tensions between apothecaries and other medical professions, as illustrated in a 1669 book written by physician Christopher Merritt called. A short view of the frauds and abuses committed by apothecaries. And apparently what used to happen is that women who were not permitted to enter the medical profession would become apothecaries instead and take business away from male physicians. And male physicians did not like that. And so would, they would write like all these books about how bad apothecaries are and how they're not real doctors and how they're like frauds and yeah. like they need to be taken down. Just straight up a cancel post a cancel on YouTube. Post, yeah. Um, the truth about apothecaries. Damn, I should have included <laughs> I should have included some of the stuff from the book because it's really funny. Um, if you have a chance to like look it up and read into it, you should because it's it's hilarious. Oh man, it's just it's also so frustrating going from this happens and apothecaries and women shouldn't be trusted, and then like a hundred years later, eh, let's just do the same thing, but now they're witches. <laughs> So during this time, this is basically the wild west of medicine, from what I'm hearing. Um, very little, like, structured research and very little, like, regulation. So that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about drug regulation, basically. How did we end up at the system we have today from this, like, complete chaos to where we are today? During most of history, many of the medicines that you've described have been like managed and developed and tested by individual doctors who spread and test this information like in knowledge and in universities, like among each other. But it's very much like up to the discretion of each individual, like how how much everything like is actually going. You know, occasionally there's like inspectors, like government inspectors, like you mentioned, and like by Frederick the Great's inspectors. But they're not scientists. They're not doctors. Like, what do they know? Like when it really comes down to it. I feel like my favorite example is probably Pliny the Elder, whose book, Natural History, is just like him making shit up and putting it all in a book. And so that was the reference point for a lot of doctors in the future was like, well, Pliny said it. So, science. <laughs> science. Today, new medicines have to undergo rigorous testing and trials to make sure that they're safe to use and to prescribe. But how we got there is a fun history, fun of trial and error and a couple of disasters. And you know it's going to be an interesting historical explosion when there are multiple the disaster events. 
so first of all, I do want to mention that every nation has had its own like journey of how to do drug regulation. And there is no like unified theory of how it's done. In the US, uh, from what I've been able to, to find, it's been the sort of like mix between being driven by professionals in the medical field themselves uh, and then occasionally by lawmakers. In Sweden, for example, it was mostly something that was like promoted by lawmakers, like and forced onto like medical practitioners against their will. Uh, and I mentioned this because, as always, we have limited time and we can't cover everything, but what's like a, the broad scope of everything? So let's start with what is considered the first book of pharmacological regulation. Because you mentioned this uh, before also, like the pharmacopoeia. You mentioned Frederick II telling pharmacies to produce medicine in, in like the same way every time, which is a sort of precursor to a future actual pharmacopoeia. And a pharmacopoeia is like... It's a piece of literature that describes various medicines and how to make them and how to prescribe them what they're for. Like a, like a textbook, basically. In the 16th century, we started seeing structured methods of medicine production and instruction. In 1581, a Spanish handbook was written by and for doctors telling each other how to make all sorts of potions and medicine and salves and stuff like that. And this is one of the first like modern, new versions of a pharmacopoeia that isn't necessarily itself like based on ancient Greek or Roman structures. And the first ever drug regulation law, at least in the form that we would recognize it, happened in the UK in 1540 when medicines were subjected to supervision under the Apothecaries, Wares, Drugs and Stuffs Act, which is... The Stuffs the Act is so good. <laughs> it's such a British way to name a, a, like a law to. The Drugs and Stuff. <laughs> the Wares, Drugs and Stuff. Love it. Um, drugs and stuff and everything else. Fantastic drugs and where to find them. <laughs> drugs and stuff. Incredible. Uh, this act was one of the earliest British statues on the control of medicines, and it established the appointment of four inspectors of apothecaries, wearers, drugs and stuff. And they were four physicians who were going to go around and make sure the doctors were poisoning people. Sort of a development of what Frederick II had, but instead of pharmacists having to like actually make the substance in front of them, they would just like travel around the country and just be like, hey, how, what are you doing here? Are you doing okay? And as long as they were like doing it okay, that would be like okay with the law. Do you have any idea what the enforcement or punishments were like? Was it just like a, hey, don't do that? Was it a tax? So f from what I could see, it was mostly just a fine. Like if, if someone got it wrong, it was mostly a fine. And that was made in like in a bit of a case-by-case -case basis. So the more egregious the error, the more egregious the fine. But I couldn't see anything about like jail time or prison sentencing or stuff like that. That may have happened, but I didn't see any of that. And also, was this so at this point where doctors making pharmaceuticals or because, you know, you're saying the four doctors were going around making sure that doctors were employing people who was so physicians were examining other doctors. Or? So from what I could see, this was uh, physicians who would examine like pharmacists, pharmacists or like apothecaries. Mm -hmm. I think the logic there was that like because they have to treat patients, they are like a bit more connected with like the actual practical application of of the drugs. Um, but obviously they don't have the same skill set. Mm. Something that I think is interesting that I've noticed is that physicians are almost like at a higher level than pharmacists throughout history. So it's like, um, you know, what I was saying earlier that like in order to have an apothecary, you had to have like a document from a physician that like yeah. had to operate 
under a physician for a little bit before you could open your own business. Like pharmacists are their own people and they had their own like knowledge base, their own skill set. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of sucks that they had to ask permission and like get examined by people from an entirely different field. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And if this is the 1540s or around like around that time, this is right when like surgery was becoming its own profession too. That wasn't just like a trade. Uh, and so you were absolutely right, Salem. Like physicians were like the head honchos, the, mm-hmm. the big, like it was them and like the more academic lecturers mm-hmm. that had like a high ranking. And so only then afterwards would surgery become like, I, I feel like right now surgery has the reputation of being like the cool medical profession. I mean, I knew that about surgery, but I didn't know that pharmacists were kind of like looked down upon like that. Yeah. Maybe more respected than surgeons. Because surgeons at this yeah, time were very yeah. lonely respected, yeah. if I remember correctly. Seeing, seen as basically like schlubs. <laughs> I mean, even today, like, even when you, uh, like, I'm just thinking about like scrubs, where like doctors are seen as like more like smart and like more analytical. And then the surgeons are seen as like bro jocks who are like play football and then go do surgery. Which I think like, I don't know, surgery requires like a ton of like, analytical knowledge too like surely it has to to me it doesn't make any sense i am frustrated with the state of respect (laughs) and then we have dentists who (laughs) who want to be more respected but they're already more respected than a lot of others there's a lot of beef here that we are not involved in (laughs) that's a whole episode by itself is just like when dentistry became its own profession oh god yeah in 1618 the english also got their own uh, pharmacopoeia in the London Pharmacopoeia, which contained methods of making a medicine called Mithridatum, Mithridatum uh, which was a very complicated medicine containing 41 individual components and was used as a sort of panacea, but it could also be very dangerous if made incorrectly. This medicine finds its way into like many of the like pharmacy guides that has existed so far, but this one apparently had like one of the best like, detailed instructions for how to make this panacea. So um, what did it do, this medicine? Oh, it treated everything. Anything you can think of. Sores, headache, <laughs> nausea, like burns, like literally basically anything. Okay, what was it? What was the active component? I must know. The, uh, I could not find this. <laughs> Just pure meth. Like. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they had invented meth. <laughs> But I think like it, that. This was also something that like very that varied between like recipes. Mm-hmm. So like even between different pharmacopoeias, this like very complicated medicine that had to be made exactly right was always like different. They always had different recipes. Mm-hmm. So and no one ever. Well, then know, what's the point of writing it down? <laughs> if everybody just gets to do whatever they want, it's like a it's like a forty one flavor mystery poison. <laughs> <laughs> In 1820. 11 doctors met in Washington, D.C. to establish the United States Pharmacopoeia, which was the first, like, American pharmacopoeia that, like, would regulate or, like, instruct apothecaries and, and, and pharmacists how to, like, make drugs in America. But as mentioned before, a lot of these doctors would use other pharmacopoeia from before or just their best judgment for, like, how to, like, best administer or do anything else. So if someone got it wrong, sucks. <laughs> Like, still, at 1820, basically no regulation still. And this is something that really surprised me when I researched this, because I thought, okay, well, 1820, now it has to start. Mm -hmm. Like, now we're just a few decades away. We're like a century away. (laughs) It's, It's a wild story. So these sort of guidebooks were the standard of medical 
regulation until the 19th century when developments in life science and chemistry made medicine a lot more complicated and more potentially dangerous. And a lot of nations are now realizing that more and more people are taking medicines and are probably dying from bad ones. So the US, for example, passes the Drug Importation Act of 1848 to make sure that medicine has to be inspected before being imported. And in 1902, the Biologics Control Act is passed to make sure that vaccines and serums are pure. So I just imagine that before these acts, like vaccines just like had gunks floating around in them willy-nilly. Just, just you know, if the pharmacist did, the, pharma, the pharmacist did his best. Some dust, like a little bug floating into a vial. No worries. No, don't worry about it. But even with these things, around the turn of the 20th century, there was still basically no widespread regulation to protect the public from dangerous medicines. There were some influential individuals, such as Dr. Harvey W. Wiley, who helped pass the original Food and Drugs Act under Teddy Roosevelt in 1906, thus creating the Food and Drug Administration. And this regulation did ban interstate commerce in adulterated medicine, but it did not require testing before release to the market. And while it had some other regulations as well, like this was like the most bare bones thing that existed. But it did have one provision, which comes up as being important. And that is, as long as the companies that are producing the medicine are honest about what's in it, they can say that it does whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you can lie about the effects of a drug, but you have to say what's in it. This comes back to be important in a little bit. Sometimes foreshadowing is plainly obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but the regulations that existed here were mostly driven by physicians and pharmacists who wanted like there to be some sort of like bare minimum. And they were not pushed by lawmakers or pharmaceutical industrialists. Because this is also the turn of the Industrial Revolution, like kicking into high gear, uh, and that is also important. It is at this point regulation stops being driven by developments in medicine and by like medical professionals. And that is for, that's for three reasons. Number one, drug manufacturing is stepping up and is becoming a very profitable industry as part of the Industrial Revolution, as I mentioned. People want to make a lot of money, and I'm sure that you're going to talk about that a little bit later, Patrick. There are also some pretty big disasters that I kind of foreshadowed a little bit that are big and that can be hard to blame on individual doctors using poor judgment. Like, th this is more like a societal thing rather than, like, ba one bad doctor. And people thought that the existing rules that existed were, like, good enough. But with that said, it is disaster time. The first disaster to drive public outcry for regulation was in 1937, when over 100 people in the US died of diethylene glycol poisoning following the use of a sulfinamide elixir. Important wording, which used the chemical as a solvent without any safety testing at all. I, None. I also, Zilch. I also love the, the, the use of the word elixir. I feel like that's probably purposefully like vague. Yep, like, that's a big deal. Elixir, like, what the fuck does that mean? So, you know? This, this is actually so much more important than I thought initially when I did the research for this. Yeah. This is actually somehow critical. Yeah. So, it feels like I'm in Red Dead Redemption, like I'm getting sold for elixirs <laughs> on the street. This is called the sulfanilamide disaster, and diethylene glycol is actually like a form of antifreeze, and it is extremely poisonous. 
Like, you do not want to be in contact with this stuff. So sulfonilamide was a drug to treat streptococcal infections and had a dramatic curative effect, and it was safe and tested in pill and powder form. Great medicine. People loved it. But in June of 1937, a salesman for the company that made the drug, the Massengill Company, claimed that there was a demand for this drug in liquid form, so it could like, be easily taken by people who you know, were sick. Fair enough, said the chief chemist of the company, who quickly developed a way to dissolve the drug in diethylene glycol. Tested with a bunch of different things, turns out that the medicine quickly dissolves in this. Great. The control lab of the company did test the drug for flavor, appearance, and smell, but not for safety, and they cleared it for use. At this point, no law required any testing for toxicity at all. So the company began sending out the first batch of 633 shipments of the drug all around the US, with some finding their way to Europe and Asia as well. Shipments went out in September, and in early October, reports of deaths began coming in. Now the early FDA instantly began to track down the drug, sending out recalls and saying on radio and in newspapers that the drug should be sent back, but critically only recalled it and didn't always mention that it was killing people. They did mention later, like after the first initial days, that like, hey, if you take this, you'll die. But in the very first like initial days, they were just like, just send it back, don't worry about it. Was there any way to treat the people who took it? Uh, probably, but as far as I can tell, that didn't really come up in the story that I, mm -hmm, that I the mm -hmm. stories that I was reading. Like it's, you're, you're being poisoned just essentially so whatever yeah yeah whatever works against that and i just i just I, I mean obviously they didn't tell people that, that you know they had drank poison but i just wonder if there was any way to like save them after they had i don't know i couldn't find anything on that on that topic either it was like that very linear type of history storytelling where it was like thing happened result happened and like, but I have so many questions about the process and the lived experience of the people. Can I get some of that information? This is also a story that has like, it's been written about so much. So there, there, like, there is definitely like a narrative here and much of like the, the, the gritty history, like you mentioned, like is, is kind of lost, unfortunately. They also had to fight the company to get access to the formula because at this point they owned the chemical composition and they didn't want to give it up to these like government lawmen. But I think that's also something that we're going to come back to later. But once they like got convinced, like, hey, this is killing people, they were fine with like giving the giving the FDA the formula. I mean, they eventually did comply. Yeah. Uh, and then the, from what I read, the owner of the, the Massengill company was so ashamed of what had happened that he died by suicide. <sighs> so it, it was a, th this is a big part of the narrative too. But not only do you send out the recall, you also have to track down the doses that have been distributed, right? That have been like sent out into the world so that no one takes it. Uh, and this is a wild story. Because first, the FDA had to find the four distribution centers of the drug, which had been sold to over 200 salesmen, uh, some of which were like door-to-door -door salesmen, and who would just like go to pharmacies and doctors' offices and just be like, hey, I have a drug, we want to buy it? And then they had to ask each and every single salesman where the drug had been sold, and then track it down from there. So first of all, finding the salesman was apparently a nightmare, because in one case, a salesman was never at home in Michigan, nor was he ever at the hotel room his name was under in Washington, D.C., so he was like a ghost. Uh, but apparently they just found him by accident in Maryland, eventually, trying to sell some other things to someone, to someone else. But this was the FDA that was tracking this person down, yes? Yes, this is the FDA, but they're, okay. they're basically doing the job of, like, private detectives. Like, they had to, like, do detective work to try to find these people. 
Okay, that's fascinating because, gosh, the FDA was like pretty toothless at this point. Like, it's going to become a thing, as you're going to say, but like, <laughs> they couldn't really do much. So the idea that they're going to like becoming private detectives is just like, this is way more involved than I thought they would ever get. Right. And it gets it gets even better because like another salesman in Texas refused to give the information on who he had sold the medicine to. First of all, why? Why would you like refuse to give that information to the FDA? But he did give fuck up that police. information. <laughs> no, 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 not fuck the police, because he got jailed by the he did he got jailed by the police and then he then he got scared enough to actually give up the information. <laughs> um like he got intimidated. But it's just like why like, why are you hiding this information? She didn't like authority. He didn't like being told what to do. Yeah, sticking up to the man. Yeah. After this, they had to find the pharmacies they had sold it to. But because of loose regulation at the time, these pharmacies had often sold the drug over the counter to doctors and patients that they did not know the names of and they did not keep written records. In other cases, doctors had incomplete records or none at all of the names and addresses of patients for whom they had prescribed. In East St. Louis, for example, 49 prescriptions were filled, and the only identification on some of them were notations as Betty Jane, nine months old, or Mrs. Jackson, no, no address. So, like, <laughs> how, how do you find those people? Now, this was actually only illegal because the medicine was sold as an elixir. Because you remember that 1906 law where you, you have to say what's in it, and having it called an elixir implies that it contains alcohol, but it didn't. Glycol is not an alcohol, so it should have been sold as a solution. And if it had been sold as a solution, no one would have been able to go to jail. This, this, is, this was not a crime, according to any law. But this outcry that happened from this actually led to the creation of the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act of 1938, uh, with many equivalents being passed in some other countries, not all, which also becomes important in a, in a very soon. There's a lot of foreshadowing in this one. This also strengthened the FDA and patched many of the problems that allowed the disaster to happen in the first place. This law put more goods under the purview of the FDA, such as cosmetics and more food stuffs and things like that. And it required that companies have to prove that their medicines are actually safe before they can be sold to market. So they have to have pre-market approval. There were so many other loopholes with this uh, 1938 act as well. Like one of the things I thought was the biggest oversight was the default position like was approval. So if you didn't hear back from the FDA after 60 days, you would be de facto approved. And so you can imagine like the more drugs that came in, eventually that overwhelms the FDA. And so you have all these FDA, quote, FDA approved medicines that never actually got looked at. Eh, we'll catch them when they're on the markets. It's kind of like the, the, the vibe yeah. that we're getting. And the reason why these loopholes were sort of allowed to exist in the first place was because there was an idea that like companies would like self-regulate because obviously if a company causes like a disaster or causes medicines that kill people, that's going to be like damaging to the company's reputation. So companies are incentivized to make sure that they have safety testing, which works great if you believe capitalism actually works. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't really do that. The second disaster though is when regulation really kicks into high gear internationally as well, and I can't believe we have an episode where I skip over Nazis, almost. We almost <laughs> skip over the Nazis. We're almost free. Um, but here we go. In 1956, the West German pharmaceutical company Chemie Grünenthal developed a drug they called thalidomide. It was made to be a sedative or hypnotic, 
that could treat all sorts of conditions such as colds, nausea, or morning sickness in pregnant women. Uh, and of course, here is where the Nazis are involved once again, because most of the chief staff, including the chief chemist and chief pathologist, were both former Nazi war criminals who had worked in death camps. As with any disaster in the mid-20th century, the Nazis are involved in every single one. The, the interesting thing is, like, this company was allowed to do that because they were initially going to develop antibiotics, which were in dire need at the time. So a lot of, like, the occupying powers basically said that, like, you're allowed to form this company because we need it, and basically gave them immunity from being tried properly for their various war crimes. So thalidomide, back to that. During testing, it was found that there was virtually no lethal dosage for animals, which translated in the regulations of the time as being safe enough for humans, even seen as harmless. And it was licensed in June of 1956 as an over-the-counter medication. This was heavily marketed and eventually sold in 46 different countries. Impressive because fewer countries existed at the time. Um, by 14 different companies under at least 37 trade names. Possibly even more. All under license from uh, Chemie Grünenthal. Notably, not in the US though. Because the FDA rejected the drug based on safety standards. There weren't enough studies to show that they were safe. So this... The previous disaster kind of saves the U.S. from the brunt of it, although there are some doses that make their way into the U.S., but it is not sold in the U.S. directly by, like, an American local company. That, that, that doesn't really happen. During this time, it was believed by doctors that medicines could not pass through the placental barrier between a pregnant person and a baby, so it wasn't even tested for that. As Why would they just believe that? <laughs> like, that's... It's so... Did they, did they not believe that any medicines passed it, or just this particular medicine? As I understand, they were starting to experiment with that idea, but it was still like so shaky that it wasn't like, a, eh, we really should test this for all uh, drugs. So it was like in the, in the middle of being developed. Yeah. Like, but yeah, it seems so obvious to us today. And I, I, I read somewhere ages ago, and I, can't, I couldn't find a source when I was researching, that some chemists thought that the chemical was too big to yeah. pass through well which you know some some are like some yeah are, some don't pass but yeah. i'm pretty sure some don't i have the answer most drugs with molecular weight of under 500 daltons cross the placenta and most drugs with molecular weight of over a thousand daltons do not cross the placenta so heparin protamine insulin do not <laughs> okay for the historian what's a dalton it's just uh, <laughs> It's like the weight. <laughs> Very it's, a, tiny. it's a measure. It's a measure of like weight, okay. molecular weight okay. of the drug. So how heavy it is, how big it is. Okay. During this time, it was believed by doctors that medicines could not pass through the placental barrier between a pregnant person and a baby. So it wasn't even tested for that. As the drug was sold, slowly doctors began seeing symptoms in fetal development of women who had taken the drug. These symptoms range from developments in the brain, limbs, internal organs. Developing wrongly, so to say, causing uh, significant amounts of damage or like incorrect growth to the point where half, at least half, of all babies that had these like changes in development would die just a few months after being born or just being stillborn, which is quite rough. The babies who would survive would often survive with like 
limb deformations and could often sometimes be born blind, deaf, uh, or with like permanent brain damage. And there are a handful of these babies that are still alive today, right? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of them are still alive today. Or more than a handful. Weirdly enough, yeah. There are still like societies that are like active and meet every year for that. And it's actually where a lot of, I got a lot of my like research material for this episode. It took five years for doctors to figure out that it was actually uh, thalidomide. It was a culprit for a lot of these like changes in development um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, not, not every pregnancy that had thalidomide like involvement were actually affected because it turns out, uh, we know now, that developmental changes only really occur if you took thalidomide 20 to 37 days after conception. If you took thalidomide after 37 days, the baby would develop fine, like no problem. And because thalidomide had so many brand names, it was oftentimes hard for doctors and patients to see like the pattern between like taking this drug and having the developmental changes because you could have you could have like 30 different patients coming in with the same symptoms but if you don't look what kind of medicine they're taking it could look as if they're taking completely different type of medication and that that also like slowed down why like it slowed down the discovery of it however in 1961 an australian doctor called william mcbride wrote a letter to The Lancet, which I'm sure a lot of you know is a very prestigious medical journal, publicly linking thalidomide with all of these symptoms in babies. In November of the same year, uh, Kemia Guinenthal withdrew the drug and many distributors shut down the sale of the drug. However, because there were so many trade names and licenses, many variants were never recalled and some remained on sale or, of course, in medicine cabinets for years until they ran out, so to say. Over just five years that this drug was on market, at least 10,000 babies were affected by the drug, of which at least 5,000 died shortly after birth. This eventually led to the Medicines Act of 1968, and in the US it led to the Kaufauer-Harris Amendment to the FDA Act. But both of these acts, uh, and many more like it in various countries throughout the world, regulated drugs even more harshly, requiring any medicine marketed to pregnant people to actually be tested for safety in regards to pregnancy, uh, and that animal trials alone were not good enough to warrant human sales. And this, this is the thing that like really shocked shocks a lot of people when they research about thalidomide. That like before 1968, you could market a drug to pregnant people without checking if it's dangerous for pregnancy, which is wild. That's 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 like a lot of people. From that time, or that's like in living memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so drug re- regulation is like so so recent. Uh, there was a criminal suit in 1968 regarding thalidomide, but the company settled out of court and no one took criminal responsibility. It is estimated that despite the massive blowback and scandal, the company probably still made money uh, on on thalidomide during this five year process while marketing to to pregnant people, which is. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like a similar thing is happening now with like the opioid epidemic, where despite harm being done and despite settling out of courts, like what consequences are really happening for the people responsible here? Like, are there really any consequences? But I mentioned earlier how medicines have gone from a sort of like best judgment to sharing of knowledge into companies producing bad medicines, forcing lawmakers to rein them in. But how on earth did we end up with this weird legal system? Well, thankfully, we have, we have you, our dear guest, Patrick, to tell us more about that. So we've spent a lot of time talking about how we built up this knowledge of pharmacology and then how physicians and pharmacists have become different professions. 
But, of course, like, modern-day drugs cost money, and that's usually when you start hearing about them in the news, and cost often prevents people from accessing care. So I'm going to kind of look at how money involves access, and thus, like, overall healthcare. So I thought I'd talk about, like, drug ownership and competition, because that's going to give some context to how that one aspect influences the final price. But before we do that, we need to talk about how someone can own a drug. Because it's kind of a, a weird concept of ownership, if you think about it. Like, it is, it's intellectual property, but it's, because how do you own a chemical that is distributed throughout space and time? It's really difficult to wrap your head around. So, the idea that someone can own the rights to a drug is relatively new. Uh, the medical systems in both ancient China and India all documented their remedies, but nobody owned the recipe itself. In fact, medicines in traditional Chinese medicine weren't eligible for patents until the 1990s, so way later to the game. This is like pure, like, uh, new Chinese economic thoughts going in there. Because if it's 1990s, like, the communist revolution happened and no patent change. Huh, I didn't even think about that. Like, of course. Yeah. Yeah, like, global top politics influences what you're going to do with patents. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, like, that's that's the time when China, like, experiments, like, more properly with, like, uh, like market socialist capitalism and starts, like, really industrializing in a capitalist sense. So I guess that, like, yeah, that's that's when patents make sense for, for like, in order to integrate in the global economy. Sure. Well, forever and ever before then, uh, it was just medicines belong to the public in kind of a way that is like public health is our priority, but really just valuing the health of the community makes everybody else healthier. Um, over in the Western Hemisphere, indigenous American people had a more communal idea of ownership itself. So like nobody really owns anything. Um, it is more that like things cannot belong to people. So traditional healers believe that medicines belong to the earth and thus to everyone. So at this point, still no idea of like drug ownership, that really starts with the birth of capitalism, which is why the rest of the story is so US and European centric. Mia is giving a salute to capitalism here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so a lot of the story revolves around this idea of patents. So it's probably a good idea to like clarify what that means first. Specifics of patent law change from country to country, but in general, a patent is a way of protecting your intellectual property. It is like codified into law that you have a right to the things that you invented. So if someone invents a thing, capitalist societies will reward them with either the credit or money for their invention. And so there are a couple different ways, like a trademark is probably what people think of the most. Um, it's a formal way of saying like, I came up with this, <laughs> right? Um, and so like, you should be paying me if you're going to use my idea. I'm just thinking of the comic, like, I made this. You made this? I made this. <laughs> I made some cookies for you, but I eat oh them. Oh my god. <laughs> I swear I'm a grown man. <laughs> I, okay. I grew up with that meme too. I grew up with that. I, yeah. Our generations. <laughs> oh my god. Perfect. Kids these days oh, don't man. know about... I, I made some cookies, but I eat them. Yeah. <laughs> this is 32, baby. Rar means uh, I love you in dinosaurs. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so back to patents. Throughout the history of medicine, we're starting to get this idea that things could be owned, right? Super foreign for most of the history of medicine. And really, once we zero in on the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, the word patent changes itself. So this is what I need to clarify. 
So if you put yourself in the shoes of a 19th century English person, as I mentioned earlier, medicine is just garbage. We are not really testing uh, many compounds for efficacy at all. Uh, we're just like going off of the word of physicians and anybody else who can make up something. This was before hygiene, this was before anesthesia and empty septic surgery, although we were starting to identify some of those compounds. Uh, so like, I did a video on foxglove. Foxglove eventually became digitalis, uh, which was one of the more useful medicines at the end of the 18th century uh, for reducing swelling. But some of the most popular drugs were just alcohol and opium. For one of the main reasons, you can tell that they're working. And if you can tell like, oh, this thing makes me feel drunk, or this thing is spicy. Like, it must have a medicinal effect. Like, you're feeling the feedback of something working, and that's how we identified a lot of the medicines that are in our modern pharmacopoeias. So, at this point, we start seeing salespeople market something called patent medicines. These were secret recipes of mostly alcohol or opium, but they were all over the place. And they were sold under trade names, like Hamlin's Wizard Oil is one of my favorites, Carter's Little Liver Pills, Lydia Pinkham's Vegetable Compound, um, one of the most famous ones, of course, is snake oil, which came to be this, like, stand-in for, like, patent medicines that were heavily advertised but didn't actually do anything. Um, and you've probably seen these advertisements all over the place. They make these beautiful, beautiful advertisements that are these big posters. They're kind of, like, vaguely psychedelic-looking, uh, but also, like, newsprint, old-timey. They're They're gorgeous. Um, I'm still obsessed with uh, Hamlin's wizard oil. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I'm never going to get out of that, that out of my head. Hamlin's wizard oil. Hamlin's wizard oil is for sure like the ongoing like name of some kind of street drug. It has to be. <laughs> Got any of that wizard oil? <laughs> <laughs> Got any of that Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound? <laughs> <laughs> so these patents... I need a little bit of reframing because this wasn't at this point intellectual property. A patent back then was originally an endorsement from some kind of like royalty or lord or lady, and it had nothing to do with protecting IP. It was more of an endorsement. So these medicines got super popular, and you could totally see why. Your favorite local celebrity, your feudal or your, your lord or lady, uh, is endorsing it, and it's opium, and it tastes great because it's probably got some sugar and spices in there. But of course, they weren't actually effective. So while snake oil and the like didn't cure your illness, at least it didn't hurt and it tasted pretty good. So now put yourself in the perspective of somebody selling those patent medicines in, let's say, like 1890s America. All these other salespeople are selling variations of just the same thing. It's booze, opium, sugar, water. So the only way that you can differentiate yourself is with branding. So with the, the big art and the advertisements and the newspapers and all that stuff. Really, like, somebody's choice to buy a medicine over the counter at this point or from, directly from the salesperson was just branding, just whatever appealed to you. So pharmaceutical companies couldn't own the product inside, but they could own their packaging. And so to give you an example of one of the medicines that actually worked at the time and some of their branding, Mia and Salem, do you know what acetylsalicylic acid is? It's going to be like Coca-Cola or something. Okay, this is aspirin. So, back in 1899, the German pharmaceutical company Bayer released their version of this acetylsalicylic acid compound, calling it aspirin, and they knew that other companies were going to put out a similar product, right? Because at this point, it's one of the only medicines that work, and so, like, it's going to be copied to high heavens. 
so they took out a patent for aspirin. Now, they couldn't take out a patent for the compound inside, but they could take out a patent for their brand. So Bayer aspirin was under patent and couldn't be copied under law. But people still did try to come up with acetylsalicylic acid compounds. This is what we would call a generic drug. It's not the name brand drug. It wasn't the first one, what we sometimes call the innovator or the pioneer drug. And these drugs were typically sold for cheaper. Even at this point, the generic drugs know they're like, oh, well, we're just going to copy something that already works. We don't have to put a lot of money into research and development to figure out if it works. Smart. I feel like it's also like, I feel like, you know, the name brand probably is like the one that most people associate like work to think work best. So like a lower cost is probably also like a good way to just attract like customers in like a better way. Like it's like the name brand, but cheaper. And a lot of people, I guess, like, well, they they think it is lesser quality, but it also costs less. So in, in, in most people's perceptions, it'll be like... It'll even out. Yep. And that's going to be one of the things that evolves over time. But really like that theme of our brand named drugs better than generics becomes this huge theme and center of debate for the rest of the 20th century. So as we progress through the 20th century, we start seeing a ton of new pharmaceutical advancements, like some of the earliest antibiotics were synthesized. And then individual hormones like insulin and adrenaline were synthesized too. And now that you are the ones inventing a molecule, like insulin is a single protein, you have the ability to patent not just the branding, but that molecule itself, right? If you are the one who came up with insulin or, you know, the invented, not the ones that our bodies produce itself, but like if you came up with a way to make insulin, then anybody else who was making insulin was copying you. So now you had the ability to patent the drug itself if it was unique in this way. Interesting. Um, I want to sh- share a story about insulin because I feel like it's a good example of this like general cultural shift from public health and doing something good towards like a big profit motive. So while insulin pricing is hotly contested these days and price gouging, in my opinion, uh, one of the first scientists to actually make insulin, Frederick Banting, said insulin belongs to the world, not to me. So he sold his patent to the University of Toronto for $1, but they were a school. So they didn't have the ability to mass produce insulin for everybody who was needing it because right? Insulin was in demand back then too. So they'd either have to increase the cost of the drug because supply demand, or they'd have to ramp up production. So they contracted a company called Eli Lilly to make the drug in America in exchange for a year long monopoly. So that had the effect of mass producing way more of insulin, like hundreds of thousands of vials a year and decreasing the cost from five cents a unit to two cents a unit. So for a while, insulin production was actually making it more affordable and it's been all downhill since i was about to say yeah like sometimes foreshadowing is relatively obvious um okay so if we fast forward a little bit we're still early 20th century here the u.s has the sulfonilamide disaster food and drugs and cosmetic acts passes in 1938 we've got an fda that actually can do something now and if you want to sell a drug in america you need to submit the safety information So you have to also submit a NDA, which does not mean in this case a non-disclosure agreement. It means a new drug applications. Um, And by by modern standards, it was super lax. Like we mentioned the de facto approval for certain drugs, but also like the enforcement abilities of the FDA is still pretty chill at this point, right? Like some safety information, some animal testing was all you really needed to get approved. Uh, And so... Not great science by modern standards. Then thalidomide happens and we step up our safety game in a huge way. 
we require safety testing, but it gets way, way more involved. So if you wanted to submit an NDA, you now have to spend a ton of time and money doing all the safety and efficacy research, like everything from preclinical trials in animals to phase one, two, and three trials uh, in humans, right? And this could take years and years. Um, the reward, though, was that if you got a drug approved as an NDA after uh, the Drug Amendment Act, then you would have something called market exclusivity. So you would be the only company that sold that, that product, uh, at least in the, in the borders of the U.S. And so that allows you to charge high prices, right? If you're the only one who has this life-saving drug, then you can charge whatever you want, as, like whatever the market allows anyway. Uh, and so how you would do that would be like, let's figure out what people can afford or what they're willing to save their lives with this drug and go like one penny less, right? That would be maximizing what you could do with, the, uh, with your price. But thanks to the terms of drug patents, which were usually about 17 years, this new FDA approval process started taking way longer. So it could take anywhere from seven to 14 years of your 17 year patent. Oh, and no. because it took so much time, I know, right? That's so much time. And because these drug makers would, they were up against such a, a big approval process, like such a lengthy process, they would take out their patents really early on in the process. So it could be like day one, you know that your drug is like probably going to be developed. You've done your rat trials or whatever. So now you take out your patent, right? <laughs> you take out your patent, you start getting ready for human trials, but that's still like, let's say on the low end, seven years of your 17-year patent. They were, they were pissed, right? Like they were eating into so much of their uh, potential patent time. So because this whole process got more expensive and time-consuming, drug companies started charging more money for these novel drugs, right? And this is... It makes sense from their perspective, right? It costs more, so they're going to charge more for their final product. But at the same time, with the Drug Amendments Act, there was another way to get generic drugs approved. Remember, these are like the copycat drugs. So along with all the changes to the new drug applications, the government also set up a way for generics to get approval. This was called an abbreviated new drug application, what I'm going to call an ANDA for the rest of this episode. The idea was that since generics were based off of a pioneer drug, as long as you could document that your drug had the same active ingredient as that approved drug, and then you supplemented that with a little bit of a literature review, then you could get FDA approval off of just that, right? So this is just like a fancy book report, right? Today in class, I show <laughs> aspirin <laughs> <Exactly>. two. <laughs> right, what does it mean? Like copy my homework, but don't make it look obvious. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so at this point, the battle between generics and brand name drugs is starting to get heated because now we're like in big competition for money. So these bigger companies had been trying to discredit generics since like the late 40s when they were starting to get more popular. They would call them safe or counterfeit. And at the same time, doctors were actually more likely to prescribe just like their favorite name brand drug thanks to the name itself. Like it was so much easier to remember one brand name drug for a commonly prescribed drug and then just use that whenever you needed. So like you didn't need to stay updated with the constantly evolving U.S. pharmacopoeia. Uh, and I, I'm going to just do this example because I love it. In 1938, this was the entry for Digitalis. Like here were the brands of Digitalis that you could prescribe. You had Digicardalis, Digicardium, Digidin, Digifall, Digifortis, Digiglucin, Digilog, Digiglutea, Upshur Smith, Digifuse, Digipit, Digipit number two, <laughs> Digipura, Digiquin, Digirex, Digismith, Digitalix, Digitalgen, Digitalone, Digitan, Digitex, Digital, Digitone, Digitora, and Digitose. Which like, bruh, pick your poison, whichever one you want. The one with the two killed me. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I said that as a joke earlier with aspirin too, but that's basically what they did. Yeah, literally. 
I love this. I want to know who's going to prescribe original Digipit when Digipit number two is is out there. <laughs> you know, like, does it just taste better? It's the sequel. It's got that original cola scent. <laughs> anyway, so there's all these different brand drug names. So you can see, like, this is a, a pretty confusing situation. And add, like, the fancy scientific names on top of all of the supposed easy brand names. And so now it's like, which one do you pick? It's You could see how the habit of a physician could get pretty ingrained in just prescribing one brand name drug. So here's the big sticking point. Pharmacists weren't allowed to substitute a generic or another brand name drug if a physician prescribed a name brand drug. Again, this is in the U.S. So you'd have to stock all of them to seem like you're a fair pharmacist uh, and to fulfill the physician's order. In 1972, the state of Kentucky allowed pharmacists to substitute drugs for equivalent brand name drugs as a way to keep costs down. Right? This was a way of making sure... That- In 1972? Sorry, mm-hmm. That's so yeah. late. Right? I mean, well, remember, this is in reaction to a law that was only passed 10 years earlier. And some of these these patents are, like, just expiring. Yeah. Right? Jesus. So, like, this process is long and involved because it's long and involved. Mm. So they do that, and then by uh, the late 1970s, 39 states had followed. They gotten rid of their anti-substitution laws, which did have the effect on, of cutting down on drug costs, right? If you're entering more competition into the market, you have more choices, and so now you have the ability to, to keep costs down a little bit more. But that presented a new problem. You had to now come up with rules for what could be substituted. The result from the federal government was this big living document, which was maintained by the FDA, called the Orange Book. It's all digital today. You can find it at fda.gov slash orange book. Uh, so unfortunately, it is orange only in name. <laughs> the uh, the webpage, I believe, is blue and gray. Oh, come on. But like if, showed... if they could at least stick to the website design, just make it orange. Like an orange background, like a banner or something. It's the least, That'd be nice. It's the I least they could do. The, the branding is all blue. So, you know, FDA always got to keep it on brand. Typical. So this was a way for them to like keep track of all the equivalent compounds. Anything that had been approved under like the digitalis... Uh, equivalents would be all on the same page. So now doctors could just open the orange book and see like, oh, Digitalis, I'm going to pick whatever, Digifuse uh, or whatever generic. So me and Salem, what? how do you feel like Big Pharma felt about this? <laughs> Probably did not like it. You bet. Yeah, this was a way of saying like, oh man, now generics are coming for that market share. We need to make sure that they cannot like actually get approved. The fewer generic drugs that come to market mean the more of the of the market we get to capture in our own profits so remember these andas the abbreviated new drug applications were just fancy research projects but they still needed to come up with the product so like even though they could get approved off of just like you know we made a thing and here's the literature review for that you still had to actually make the thing so you needed to do some research on the product so the big turning point happened in the early 80s in 1983 a small generics company called Bowler bought five kilograms of a sleeping pill called Florazepam. This was from a big name brand company called Roche Pharmaceuticals. They wanted to do some science on it, figure out the chemistry, and then make a generic version of the medicine. Then they could have their research and their production ready to go so that when Roche's patent expired, they could just, boom, hand in an ANDA, and then they could start selling their stuff right away. It was just trying to time the, time the market in this way. Now, Bowler thought it was okay because they were just studying the drug. They knew that the patent was still in effect, but they were just studying it. They weren't marketing it. Uh, But Roche did not like this. They found out. They sued them for patent infringement, and they won the case. I wonder wonder how they found out. (laughs) There was a rat in the building (laughs) who ratted them out. (laughs) A snitch. Also, who's going to buy five kilograms of a sleeping pill is a lot. I I feel like that raises some flags. Yeah, fair, fair. I guess maybe they, uh... (laughs) If you do that today, you get to put it on a list. Yeah, yeah. 
They had to send they had to send the guy to like all the pharmacies across the United States and like buy like two packs from each pharmacy so he doesn't raise any any flags, any red flags. Like breaking bad. Yeah, like breaking bad. That's exactly where I got that from. Perfect. <laughs> okay. This thing happens. <laughs> oh, I was like, well, anyway. Perfect what comedic timing. <laughs> Okay, so this decision effectively extended new drug patents. So if a generic company couldn't even research the drug that was under patent, then the name brand company would have a monopoly on the market for not only the entirety of the patent, but plus however long it took for the generic drug to get approved, which could be years. Now, the federal government reacted to this by passing the Hatch-Waxman Act in 1984. Um, It was supposed to be a compromise between inspiring innovation and making new drugs, Uh, and rewarding drug patents in that way, but also getting more generics onto the market so that they could keep prices down. So here's how it works. Name brand drugs would be rewarded with market exclusivity for five years after their application was approved, which I know it seems shorter than like 17 years minus whatever, but it could be longer and it was still worth billions of dollars. So this guaranteed market exclusivity was still like a really good win for big pharma. On the other hand, generics had to finally prove that they worked and worked as well as the reference drug by showing something called bioequivalence in a small crossover trial. So this metric of bioequivalence has a bunch of different like technical aspects to it. It's basically showing that it works the same in a real human body as the other one. So if the generic company was the first competitor to a pioneer drug, if they were the very first ANDA submitted, then they'd be rewarded with 180 days of market exclusivity. So for six months, they'd be the slightly cheaper alternative to the established drug, and that was still worth tens of millions of dollars. Um, There was a report by the FDA that came out, I think in 2019, but it showed some of the the market from 2015 to 2017, saying that if a pioneer drug has one competitor, that generic competitor can charge anywhere from 60 to 70% of the original name brand. And again, when you can set the bar wherever, that's still a pretty good chunk of money to be made. And then it starts going off like, exponentially once you get more competitors. So the second competitor is a big price down, third competitor drops it down even further. I think once it was at a dozen competitors, now you finally have like an affordable drug. So this is why like all modern day aspirins are about the same price. So this gave rise to a bunch of corruption. The drug company Mylan, starting in like the late 1980s after Hatch-Waxman was already in effect for a little bit, started accusing the FDA of saying like, I think that you're giving like preferred treatment to some companies and not others uh, because as companies realize, oh man, there's 180 days of market exclusivity on the line, they would be first in line at the FDA, ready to go with their ANDAs when the name brand drugs patent was going to expire. This was something called the first to file phenomenon. It happens within a bunch of other like patent areas too, but this was like, imagine like Black Friday in front of the FDA, like just for everybody to get their patents in. And so that's what Mylan was complaining about in the late 1980s that like, hey, I think that you're giving priority to other companies, even though we were first to file, it's like you're, behave- you're behaving like the other company was first to file. And that means that they're going to make a bunch of money off of this. As it turns out, that's exactly what was happening. So there was a ton of bribery within the ANDA approval system. Uh, and as many as 30 different individuals across nine different pharmaceutical companies were involved. Like... Imagine if that same thing happened with like AstraZeneca or Pfizer these days, like that would be a huge, huge scandal. This was nine different companies. 
So there was bribes, there was corruption, and this gave rise to global inequity because now you have affluent countries buying these name brand drugs and some of the cheaper generics, but at the same time, uh, we still need to make sure that like global medicines are distributed like equitably, uh, but that means that poorer countries are just kind of getting the leftovers of generic medicines that the US doesn't want or that Europe doesn't want. And so it just, it gives rise to this terrible situation where we're giving our, our reject drugs to uh, poorer countries. So to wrap things up, one of the reasons that innovator drugs are so expensive is because they do so much research to even get to the market. And then thanks to the US patent system, they can just charge whatever they want to because they don't have any competition. And then if generics do come to market, they can bring the price down, but it takes a lot of time for those competitors to bring the price down to the point where they're actually affordable. So in this way, patents and the free market have had such a big impact on how a drug actually gets priced. There's a bunch of things that I didn't have time to mention. So like we've tried to do a bunch in the US to artificially control these, these prices. So like Medicaid was a big thing that we tried to get the government to pay for different drugs. To Basically, as I understand it, it was like trying to copy single payer health systems in other parts of the world. Uh, and uh, it's a big debate even to this day. Nice. It's a very convoluted history. So we're nearing the end of today's episode. Um, and I, I, I want to quickly mention some concerns about, about both prescription medicine and like patented medicine. First of all, capitalism is bad. But secondly, I do want to mention like, um, like you, you did mention that like a big, a big issue that like patented medicine is, is causing is like accessibility more so than anything else. And I think, I think it's worth mentioning like an ongoing question about like medicine and patents and that's COVID and COVID vaccines. Um, cause that has been like an, an ongoing debate, whether or not like the big pharmaceutical companies that have developed various COVID vaccines are going to like release the formula or going to enforce patents and things of that nature. And the state of like how things are going right now with regards to that, it, it seems that a lot of these pharmaceutical companies have chosen to like keep enforcing their patents and like uh, in regards to like market exclusivity um, when it comes to when it comes to like COVID vaccines. Both Pfizer and Moderna have signaled that like they are going to enforce um, their patents in wealthy countries, and Moderna signaled that like just today, just a couple of hours ago, as we're recording this podcast. But interestingly enough, they're not enforcing it in poor countries, and they're doing this to say that they're helping with like accessibility to like make sure that like more people around the world have access to COVID vaccines. But also like a lot of the pharmaceutical like, like factories and laboratories are in wealthy countries where they are enforcing that. And when you say enforcing, are, are they enforcing like production research? So like, let's say uh, like a lot of, a lot of generic drug manufacture happens in India and China. Yeah. Would India be able to produce Moderna's COVID vaccine? So what I can see from, from what I could see here is they intend to enforce licensing. So like various pharmaceutical companies like in India would be required to like pay a significant amount of money to Moderna or Pfizer uh, in order to produce it. But I think that depends whether whether or not, and, I, and in Moderna's case, I don't think it's clear yet either because they only recently announced this today that they're going to enforce it on wealthy countries. 
So it's kind of up to their own disclosure whether or not they view India as a wealthy country or not, which is a lot of power that I'm not comfortable with, like biopharma, like biomedical companies having uh, here. They could enforce it on every country, and they have the legal right to do that, apparently, because like the the UN or the like inter- international health organizations haven't stepped in and forced them to give up their path- patents. But that is that is a power that that like they have right now, and they are choosing to exercise. And so that's like a big concern right now, especially with like a lot of charities in Asia and Africa, because they're worried that they're 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 worried that like a lot of pharma uh, like uh, production plans for the vaccine are going to have their either supply line or their distribution centers like be affected by this. So even though they are not enforcing the patents there, it still might impact like their ability to produce healthcare. And I also read a little bit, and you might probably, you probably know a bit more about this than I do, Patrick. Um, But like, when it comes to like researching medicines, like new medicines, in order to like deal with drug patents, a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies will create something called like Me Too drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Where, yeah, the companies will spend like absurd amounts of money developing a drug that is like similar to an already existing drug that has market exclusivity, but that works just like slightly different, that it has like slightly different active ingredients and is technically like legally different. Uh, Yeah, some companies will call, or some areas will call these biosimilars as well. Yeah, and it's basically leading to a phenomenon where like multiple like billion dollar corporations will spend billions of dollars researching essentially the same drug over and over and over again, just so that they can like kind of produce a generic, even though it's not really, because it's technically legally a different type of drug. Um, and that is something that like, I know the World Health Organization is just like, that's kind of sh- like scummy. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? You know, they could be it's researching. It's almost like it comes full circle. It's almost like it comes full circle because like everybody is now selling the same thing, and then it's all just about branding and marketing dollars. It's we're all we're back to snake oil. <laughs> Damn it! We really except are. with actual effective active ingredients. Let's <laughs> let's clarify that we have effective snake oil at last. So there are some concerns like with with like going forward with like regulation and legality around medicine, but at least we have like basic safety standards now. Thank God for that. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the big things that we're trying to do, like on a global health level, is something called uh, drug regulation harmonization. So if the regula- if the regulatory rules in like the U.S. are different than, say, like in Sweden, then you want to be able to hold every country to the highest standard of regulation. That way, you know, every everybody has high quality medicine. Um, which is like a great thing to aspire to, but at the same time, like better drugs are also more expensive or at least in general, right? Newer, better drugs are more expensive. We can say that for sure that newer drugs are more expensive. And so like while harmonization is a great idea, it's not going to necessarily work out right away for poorer countries, which is like, that's what breaks my heart, right? It's like, we want everybody to have access to all the great medical knowledge we've created over years. But we're pricing people out just because markets. Okay, so throughout all this, there is still some reason for hope. We've condensed a lot of information of like the last couple thousand years into what might be a two-hour episode. We have no idea at this point. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but we've made a lot of progress. So while drugs are still prohibitively expensive and things like the EpiPen and insulin are prohibitively expensive, we have made so much progress in both drug safety and regulation and efficacy over just the last 100 years. And while the Hatch-Waxman Act, the Generics Act from 1984, has had its share of scandal and like really inspired a bunch of distrust in the government, it has had the effect of keeping generics prices down. So while we do spend a lot of money still, it would be colossally more expensive without some of the regulation that we've had. So there is still hope. I, yeah, I, I. It is interesting, like to me as a Swede as well, to talk to talk with you an American about like drug prices because like I I do know that like a lot of pharmaceuticals are very expensive even within Europe. It's just that those prices are never translated to like consumers. But like that is, mm -hmm. I feel like that is definitely a question for another episode. <laughs> just like yeah. healthcare cost regulation but that's yeah but as you say like things are things are going better but this has been leech fest <laughs> this is how i end every episode because i don't know how to end things uh and i we've had a good episode today i like to feel yeah i think it's been we, an amazing we covered a lot we we covered a lot we covered four thousand years of human history we of course want to uh, thank everyone for watching this episode and we want to of course thank you patrick <laughs> for coming on here and giving us so much valuable information and comedy. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Um, if you're listening to this episode, please uh, check out Patrick's channels. Uh, they will be linked to those in the description of the episode, I assume. And uh, we will tweet. Uh, we'll tweet about your, your channel and everything. Like, check, check his stuff out. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. Thank you. And uh, there will be a guest appearance from you two in the corresponding video for this uh for this episode i'm going to be doing a, a video that is entirely about generic drugs and a lot of the a lot of new information than we presented in this video um but they're the the video and this podcast complement each other i'll say that yeah we we got that cross cross platform synergy <laughs> cross promotional <laughs> energy i'm trying to come up with buzzwords that like business people use uh, if you like our content Follow us on Twitter or follow the podcast or rate the podcast uh, either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts because it does help the it does help the podcast. Uh, I've said podcast and like every other word times. now. Mm -hmm. We it's lost all meaning. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the episode and we will see you on the next one. Bye bye. Do you want to say bye, Patrick? Bye everyone. Bye.